Welcome to the first patient podcast in a series produced by the Thoracic Oncology Group of Australasia, TOGA, during Lung Cancer Awareness Month 2020. TOGA is the leading thoracic cancer trials group in Australia and New Zealand, a multidisciplinary and patient-centric group of leading clinicians, nurses, allied health professionals, researchers, and patient advocates within the community that conducts high-quality, clinically relevant research in order to improve outcomes for patients with thoracic cancers. I'm Mark Scott. My day job is running the New South Wales Department of Education, and before that, I ran the ABC. And it was during my time of running the ABC that my wife, Bryony, was diagnosed with lung cancer. And at that time, of course, my interest and my awareness of lung cancer grew very quickly. Bryony's doing well, but I must say the challenge facing those um, who are experiencing thoracic cancers is something that has stayed with me and I continue to be very interested in this area of research and work. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer-related deaths in Australia and lung cancer in never smokers is still the seventh leading cause of death in this country. Lung cancer kills more women every year than breast, ovarian and uterine cancers combined, even though many seem to think that the only cancer women ever get is breast cancer. More young women are being diagnosed every year who have never smoked. Around a third of new diagnoses fit this category for women. And tragically, we lose one person every hour to lung cancer. And TOGA is working tirelessly to change these outcomes. And thankfully, this statistic is declining. Higher awareness, earlier screening and targeted treatments have played a role in better outcomes for lung cancer patients, as has the identification of driver mutations that can cause some lung cancer. And Alexandra's story is inspiring in this context. She was diagnosed with lung cancer eight years ago her treatments have varied due to the discovery of a rare mutation called ALK, and she's now involved in an innovative clinical trial using a targeted agent for patients with the ALK gene rearrangements. And in this podcast, we'll talk about Alexandra's challenges in diagnosis, searching for the best treatments available, living in a regional area, and what it's like to be involved in lung cancer clinical trials. Alexandra is redefining survival rates for those with lung cancer and bringing new hope for patients all around the world. So, um, Alexandra, thanks for joining us on this podcast. You found out you had lung cancer at the age of 31. You know, you were young, you're active, you're a healthy young woman who'd never smoked. This must have been an incredulous diagnosis, a, a terrible shock. What, what symptoms had you noticed? Yes, yeah, Mark, it was. It was a massive shock. And the scariest thing was that I, I had no symptoms, um, which is what makes this disease such a terrible disease for so many young people like me. Um, we in the lung cancer community say that anyone with lungs can get lung cancer. And that reflects the reality that we actually see all the time. Um, unfortunately, it's not uncommon for a young, fit, super healthy person with no or mild symptoms to be diagnosed with lung cancer, often at a relatively advanced stage. And in my case, that was what happened to me. I, I found a small lump at the base of my neck. That was my only symptom. I had no cough, no tiredness, nothing that you associate with any sort of problem. And by the time I'd gone through all the screening processes, it turned out to be locally advanced stage 3B lymph 
um, lung cancer through the lymph nodes of my neck and chest. And ironically, a, a tiny amount in my lung, but mainly through the lymph nodes in my chest and neck, which was a fairly advanced diagnosis at that point. So it, it had started in your lung, but, but yes. had, had moved um, through the lymph nodes to your, your neck. And, and, and so what was the immediate uh, treatment that you, that you then engaged in? Because it was still in the lymph nodes, as opposed to in any other organ apart from the lung, we did initially go for a curative option. So initially I had chemo radiation, chemotherapy combined with high dose radiation to try and get rid of it that way. Um, that was, that's the standard treatment still, I think, for, stage, for that stage of lung cancer. And that worked for a few years. Now you were living in a regional town at the time did that impact on your treatment options? And were you concerned that you might be disadvantaged in the kind of treatment that was available to you because you weren't living in a major metropolitan area? Uh, yes and no. I mean, because of the location of my cancer, they, there was concern about treating me so radically in a regional centre. I think because the um, experience with doing that kind of thing wasn't necessarily here. Um, so I was actually referred on to the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre, which is obviously a much larger centre mm -hmm. and came under the care of David Ball, who's one of the best on radiation oncologists in his field. So I ended up in a, in a larger centre where certainly there was that experience. Um, but I could have been treated in my centre. And I think it's important to note that it's, I was lucky enough to, in Townsville, initially meet with oncologists who both knew about the ALK mutation and uh, you know, looked, worked, looked outside the box for me. Too many people, when they're diagnosed, they go to oncologists in these smaller centres who just, well, a smaller and larger, I've heard of both. I've heard of people in major capital cities going to oncologists who still don't know about these biomarkers. And so they send lung cancer patients, whatever their age, off for, you know, standard chemotherapy. And you maybe don't get the same outcomes that you would get if you were at a, at a larger centre where there's perhaps more knowledge about these rarer cancers. So in my case, it worked out, but it's not always the case where that happens. Now, now, you've been involved in a clinical trial for some time now. It must be quite a big decision to be involved in a trial. Tell us about how you weighed up whether to become involved with it and then your experience with the trial to treat your, can treat your condition. Yes, uh, it is a big decision. I mean, clinical trials are time consuming. Um, and it, but in my case... Why, why is that? The stat, I think in a, in a clinical trial, you get a higher, I think you get a higher degree of care in terms of you get a lot more contact with your clinicians. So you have a lot more eyes on you. There's a lot more um, clinic visits than you would necessarily get just even on a standard scanning regime or on a treatment. Um, you have, in my case, for example, you have a monthly visit to see the doctors then you have a you know a three monthly scanning schedule then you might have additional tests in between that they always want more data for this more data for that so by design you'll sit you're in front of a doctor more often um, that can be a good thing though um, I think in my case after eight years 
particularly living in a regional centre, I was ready to join a clinical trial, particularly starting a new treatment where I wasn't sure of the side effects. It was quite reassuring to me to know that there would be a clinical trial nurse, for example, who if I had a weird side effect or a side effect I was having trouble with, there was someone I could just ring up or email straight away and say, hey, you know, I need help managing this side effect. So from that point of view, the decision to enter a clinical trial was, was quite an easy one. Um, I also joined the clinical trial to get access to a two drug regime, which I think is going to be quite promising. And um, that's another reason people join clinical trials. I think there's a fair amount of misunderstanding that you only join a clinical trial when that's your last option. But you can also join a clinical trial to get access to new and innovative treatments that may not be available later on. You know, when a clinical trial is open, they're only open for a certain period of time. So you, you, you um, decide when to join if that suits you at the time as well. Um, I mean, we're given it's the COVID-19 year, we've seen this dramatic rise in telehealth and engagement with medical professionals using um, video conferencing technology and, and that kind of connection. Do you think that the rise of telehealth is going to make it more likely that, that patients can be recruited in geographies for clinical trials in a, in a way that may not have been possible um, in the past? I mean, the government's now funding telehealth in a way that wasn't wasn't common even a year ago. Yes, and living in a regional centre, seeing that government funding was really um, exciting because it does definitely it definitely opens doors for patients who are in regional centres to get access, whether it's for a second opinion or even as a, a primary consult with experts that they might not be in a position to see face to face. I mean, at the moment, the borders are closed, so you physically can't go and see people. Um, so telehealth in the context of medical care and clinical trials has been a, a godsend because you can everything can continue just remotely. But in going forward, yeah, I think it will it will COVID has it's been the silver lining of COVID that telehealth has really taken off the way it has. And and speaking to um you know, leaders in the health department here in New South Wales, I know they have a fervent wish that it stays with us and this is going to be a positive legacy in what has been a very challenging, what has been a very challenging year. And and I can see yes. for you in your circumstances, you know, you wouldn't have been able to get to Melbourne, even if you'd wanted to be able to get to Melbourne. But no, to keep that you, connection up with telehealth. Yeah, that's been, right. It, it, it just breaks down barriers. It breaks down the cost barriers. I mean, obviously, it's a lot cheaper if you, you don't have to physically travel somewhere. Um, yeah, you know, it just removes barriers to, to entry that patients, when they're considering clinical trials, just might, that might put, be enough to put them off, or I have to travel, or I have to fly somewhere every certain, so every so often, and now they don't. And, and it might be a strange question. Do you get used to it? Because I think what, what people would say, I mean, we've all been doing a lot of Zooming or FaceTiming or whatever. It's great. It's not the same as being in person. Do you find on the connections you're making with the doctors and the researchers that you're working with, that you really, you get to that level of familiarity over time, that the technology is not an impediment to the authenticity of the exchange? Absolutely. I mean, my current oncologist, I've actually only ever met her over Zoom <laughs> and at, at the moment, and I, I don't feel that that's been detrimental to developing a rapport with her at all. 
Um, I mean, the technology is so good these days. I don't really know that you need to be sitting four feet from someone or directly in front of a screen. And I mean, I also say when you're as a patient, when you have medical appointments, it can be easier to be talking to someone over a computer. If you know you're going through scan results, you're nervous. If you're in a familiar environment rather than sitting in a waiting room, you know, for however long waiting for your name mm. to be called, that can actually make the patient experience better rather than worse. I mean, you're, you've got a, a, a rare mutation, but several trials have recruited well in Australia. Tell us about how you think we can improve the recruitment capacity, given that the number of these rare mutations causing lung cancer, especially in women, is growing. Well, I think improving accessibility to those trials, you know, would be a, a real benefit and obviously um, increasing availability of trials through groups like TOGA will help recruitment, <laughs> um, removing the cost, removing the barriers to, to participating, you know, the travel barriers removes the cost and removes for women the time away from their families where they might not be able to get away from, I mean, I've got a 10 year old. So for me, when I consider whether to travel for a trial, whether I want to enrol in a trial, can I do that? Can I juggle childcare with my husband so I can afford mm. to be away? Um, and awareness of clinical trials that are out there um, you know whether that's through a, a registry keeping the, the clinical trials registries really up to date with the trials that are out there or creating additional awareness among the local oncologists regional oncologists even the gps that these patients might be seeing as their first or second point of contact that hey you know this clinical trial exists that you may be interested in rather than keeping it as a, a sort of mystery box or a last case option. Do you think the creation of Australia's first trials group that focuses solely on thoracic cancers will improve access to clinical trials and treatment options? What's the upside of this approach that's being made now? Definitely. I, I think the creation of TOGA is a huge plus. Um, rather than disparate groups working in isolation, having a group like TOGA bringing together scientists and clinicians who are all focused on developing trials specifically in thoracic medicine can only increase the speed at which you know, trials are developed. Um, it's exciting in a way because for so long, lung cancer has been a bit of like the ugly duckling of the cancer world. So to have a group say, hey, this is actually a real problem and we're going to not only um, address it, but focus solely on the treatment of that problem will, I think, definitely lead to increased options. So, yeah, I'm very excited about TOGA. Can we talk a little bit about um, lung cancer being the ugly duckling of the cancer world? How does that make you feel? I mean, in, in a way, as you know better than anyone, um, if, if somebody hears that you've got lung cancer, their immediate assumption is uh, uh, that you're a smoker or other lifestyle yeah. decisions. Um, yeah. if, even if you were a smoker, it would be no less tragic for you no. and your family. No one but, deserves but, cancer. But but how do you feel when lung cancer really attracts so little money for research, given the cataclysmic effect it has on so many families in this country every year compared to, in effect, uh, all the other cancers? Yeah, um, it, there's been no doubt that the public health messaging around smoking causes lung cancer has been incredibly effective. Um, and you're right, when I was first diagnosed, 
that's all anybody asked me. Oh, I didn't know you smoked. Oh, I didn't know you were a smoker. How long have you a smoker? And these are people who have known me my entire life, you know, have seen me live my life. I'm like, when did you think I was whipping out to have a, a cigarette, you know? Yeah. But it's hard enough being diagnosed with cancer. But then when people in, in try and put the blame on you or they don't even think they're doing it, but by asking that, you know, you feel like you don't want to talk about what type of cancer you've got. Where, and, and we know that there's contributing factors to a whole range of different cancers. I mean, smoking contributes to every type of cancer, probably in some form or another, but it's just linked, so linked that patients who have lung cancer do feel a sense of shame and, and that stigma. So it does make a hard diagnosis even harder, particularly when we have a large number of people who are like me, you know, young, healthy, fit people who are hit with this disease. So yeah, it, it makes it hard. And and of course, lifestyle decisions uh, are, are drivers of many different cancers. Absolutely. Um, which don't attract the same stigma that lung cancer has caused. And, and, and as you say, um, more and more, particularly uh, younger women uh, developing lung cancer who have never smoked, but for mm -hmm. anyone who gets it, a tragedy and needing the very best minds, the very best doctors and researchers to be able to work on this in an innovative way, which is what TOGRA is designed to do. I mean, what, what it means, I think, for someone like you and, and others diagnosed at the right time is that cancer can become a chronic condition due to early screening and diagnosis and more effective targeting agents used to treat specific mutations. How do you see the future of cancer therapy changing over the next day, decade. I mean, you're a scientist and you you approach this with a through a scientific lens. Take us where, to where you think cancer treatment and cancer therapy might move and, and what would you like to see happen for lung cancer patients? Yeah, I mean, first, Mark, I, I think I'd like to say as someone who's lived with lung cancer for eight years, the pace of change that I've seen in just that amount of time has been staggering. You know, we've gone from just having chemo and radiation to for lung cancer to today where the science has identified multiple actionable biomarkers differentiating many different types of lung cancer and also the drugs to target those kind of mutations and this is against a background of developments in immunotherapy also that's really helped patients with other types of lung cancer and um, it does feel like the facade of lung cancer as being so fatal is starting to actually come down Having said that, though, there's still too many people for whom the drugs that you've talked about don't work or they don't work for long enough. And even for patients like me, you know, I've had eight years, but we still run out of options eventually. I mean, I'm, I'm on what's currently the last oral therapy that's available to me. And without further research, hopefully like through something like TOGA, they know it, we'll come to a point where I won't have any treatment options left. So the first thing we need is more durable treatments and or ways to make the treatments that we've got at the moment keep working for, for longer. Um, and that's what all of us currently on treatment patients are desperately hoping and crying out for. Um, aside from keeping previously diagnosed patients alive, though, I'd like to see a, a situation for newly diagnosed patients going forward where the conversation can start to involve the word cure in a realistic way or certainly long-term control. And I honestly think in the next decade, 
there are going to be those further advances with immunotherapy, such as cancer vaccines. I mean, there's a cancer vaccine that's currently being developed and entering early stage trials in the States next year for ALK, to ALK lung cancer. There's gene therapies using CAR-T technology that will, I think will lead to breakthroughs and progressions with drug combinations. The drugs we already have are the drugs that are being developed that, that will lead to cure or long-term control of, of lung cancer. I don't think that's unrealistic at all. Alexandra, thanks so much for sharing your story today on this podcast. And thanks for giving us the insights on your experience as someone diagnosed with lung cancer, being involved in clinical trials, the challenges of managing that from a, a rural setting in Australia. And thanks for telling your story today. And thanks for your great endorsement for the work of those doctors and researchers and the full team that's involved in this great effort at TOGA to really provide a, a profound change in the uh, experience of those who have thoracic cancers and a dramatic attempt to come together to work in a way to improve their outcomes. Thanks for being part of this podcast today. And if you've enjoyed hearing Alexandra's story, you'll find further podcasts available on the TOGA website, the Science of Life website, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Mark. <laughs>